All right, good to see you guys tonight. I want to start by praying and then we'll dive into God's word together. If you will pray with me. God, thank you for this day where we can return on the Sabbath and worship you, not just in the morning, but in the evening as well. God, let it be a reminder to us that you have promised an ending rest with you for eternity. God, we look forward to that great day. And I pray, would you open the word of God and speak to us strongly tonight in Christ's name, amen. If you have your Bibles or electronic devices, we're gonna be looking at Joshua 5 tonight. But while you're turning there, I'd like to do a quick overview of kind of where we're at in the story. If you're, if you're new to us, we've been studying through Joshua 5 and we may be prone to take tonight's one small instance out of context of all that God is doing here. So a couple of weeks ago, we started in, in Joshua 1, and in Joshua 1, there's this huge promise where God, God comes to Joshua and he says, be strong and courageous because you're going to lead the people to inherit the land that I swore to their forefathers. And then in chapter 2, we, we studied and we saw that God gives us this incredible forecast through Rahab. She says, I know that the Lord has given you the land because terror has fallen upon us. All the inhabitants of the land are faint because of you. We heard these things, and our hearts melted, and we lost courage because of you. For the Lord your God is in heaven, and heaven on, he is the God of heaven above and the earth below. And then chapter C and chapter 3, we see the Lord come through and, and spread the, the Jordan at flood stage. And they walk through on dry land, and we see a miracle. And at this point, if you're like me, we may be tempted to, to suspect now's the moment. The Lord is about to devastate all the ites in the land, right? Now's the, now's the moment. He's going to fulfill the promise. He's got the Canaanites right there in front of them. They're scared. The Israelites, they've just seen the Lord's great miracle at work. They're pumped up, ready to go. But the Lord's in no hurry. He's patient. He's in no hurry because in his purposes, he can accomplish all things without haste. Because in his eternity... He can always afford to wait. God takes the time. He, he reconciles with his people. Wow. <laughs> he takes time to remove their disgrace. He takes time to reestablish his ways. He takes time to remind them of his powerful presence. He might be reminding me of his powerful presence. Y'all warn me next time. It could be said this way. God's in no hurry to accomplish his will through us before he accomplishes his will in us. Remember what was going on in Israel before Joshua takes over. They've been unfaithful to keep the commands, right, in the, in the desert. We know this from our study of Hebrews 3 where he says, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were they that heard and rebelled? Were they not those that Moses led out of Egypt? God needs to make his people right with himself, to reconcile them. You see, God's not interested in fighting his battles with a disobedient group of Israelites. So what does he do? He reestablishes his covenant with them by circumcising them. He removes their disgrace and gives them the sign of the covenant that this is the way that we're going to move forward with my covenant people. Secondly, God's not interested in fighting his battles with those who aren't feeding on him. 
the Israelites had only practiced the Passover twice, once in Egypt in its initiation and once at the base of Mount Sinai. This is the third time in 40 years that the Israelites have observed the Passover. God wants to make sure that the people are feeding on him and his power and his presence. He's no hurry to rush off into, into battle with those who are famished. A man who is not fed on Christ, he will not be able to defeat his enemies. The Israelites wouldn't have been able to defeat the Canaanites. We would not be able to defeat Satan's tax, attacks either. If we do not trust in the Lord and regularly feed on God, regularly engage him in the sweet communion of prayer, if we don't partake of the provision of heaven, how will we ever be able to do the work that our Heavenly Father has called us to? Right? But God, but God in his faithfulness, God in his patience, patiently prepares the Israelites. And he patiently prepares us. He removes their disgrace. He reestablishes his ways. And he reconciles them to himself. And that's where we reached out our text tonight. Tonight, as we open God's word, we want to see that. We want to see God's patient preparation. Plus, we want to see his powerful presence. And we want to see that that leads to a posture of obedience. So now let's read Joshua 5, verse 13 through 15. Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and he asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. The summer of 1968, 38-year-old 38, son of an immigrant had reached a pinnacle moment. He'd worked vigorously while going to law school at night, and he put his time in. And for 10 years, he had worked up to this position as top aide to a U.S. senator. And in the summer of 1968, he gets the call to serve as special counsel to the President of the United States. Put in hours and hours upon work. He considered himself a self-made man. And as he continued his work as special counsel, literally, he was sitting in on meetings that were changing the face of our country. He was shaping our country. But in that moment, he began to feel like something was missing. That he'd reached the pinnacle with his office right next to the President's. He felt like there was something still lacking. I think that's kind of where Joshua finds himself tonight at the beginning of this text. He has the opportunity of a lifetime. He's put in all the time and the work being an aid to Moses, but something's missing. Verses tonight show us that Joshua has slipped out. He slipped out of the camp at Gilgal, and he's gone near Jericho, and he's examining the city. Some speculate maybe he's looking for a point of attack. Others say maybe he's just on a prayer walk asking the Lord for guidance. Or maybe he's looking for the Lord himself to show up and lead the Israelites to victory. Either way, he looks up and what does he see? He sees what he perceives to be a man standing before him with his sword drawn, ready for battle. At this point, Joshua asks a very important question. 
It's probably a question many of us would ask. Are you for us? Are you for our enemies? Question seems fair enough, right? For somebody yielding a sword. But the answer reveals a whole lot more. This is not just a man. Joshua has encountered the pre-incarnate Christ himself. We usually refer to these instances or encounters as a Christophany. Now, Christophany is just a, a fancy theological term to denote an appearance or a manifestation of Christ before he assumed his human nature as a man. We typically call Old Testament manifestations of God Christophanies instead of theophanies because of two verses. One is John 1.18. that says, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. So that would be our primary text to say this is a Christophany. Secondly is Colossians 1.15. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. But how do we know that this particular instance is a Christophany? Not just a vision, not just an angel of the Lord. The text gives us several clues, and we want to look at those tonight. So look with me. The first one, when Joshua asks, are you for us or are you for our enemies? The answer is neither. Essentially, the commander is saying, I don't fit your human category. I'm outside the box of those two options. I'm above such a simple delineation. I didn't come to choose sides. I came to take over. I'm the commander. The second thing that points to a Christophany is that he identifies himself as the commander of the Lord's army. This is a divine title. It's only one that would be honorable to be, to be met with one of the triune members of the Godhead. Thirdly, we see his response. He says, I have now come. Now this statement may seem to be lacking. Come to do what? Um, but Joshua would have known this. He would have known what this meant. He would have known this is the fulfillment of a promise. You see, in Exodus 23, God gave Moses this promise. He says, Exodus 23, 20, See, I'm sending an angel ahead of you to guard you along the way and to bring you to the place I have prepared. Pay attention to him and listen to what he says. Do not rebel against him. He will not forgive your rebellion since my name is in him. If you listen carefully to what he says and do all that I saw, I will be an enemy to your enemies and I will oppose those whom you oppose. My angel will go ahead of you and bring you into the land of the Amorites, the Hittites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hivites, and Jebusites, and I will wipe them out. Joshua would have known when, when the commander of the Lord's army says, I have come. Now's the time. The fulfillment is here. These are the words of fulfillment only given by the one who could fulfill them. Furthermore, Joshua worships this commander of the Lord's army, and he does so without any consequence. If this were just an angel or a messenger, he wouldn't have accepted God's worship. We know this from Revelation 22 when John tries to worship the messenger that God sends to him. He says, do not do it. I'm a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and the prophets and all who keep the words of this book. Don't worship me. Worship God. Or in Acts 7, we see Paul and Barnabas rejecting worship. It's not right for, for people to worship that which is not God. And yet it is acceptable here for Joshua to worship the commander of the Lord's army. Furthermore, in Joshua 6, 2, just two verses after these that we have studied, Joshua, the author of this text, 
He refers to the commander as Lord or, or Jehovah. He calls him the name of God, the, the proper noun that is, is reserved only for the one true God. And lastly, as if we needed any more proof, in verse 15, the commander commands Joshua, take off your sandals for the ground you're standing on is holy ground. This would have been a huge reminder for Joshua. These are the words from the living God that were spoken to Moses, his, his predecessor. Joshua, of all people, would have known these are the words of the living God. But you know, this isn't the first time that God has made himself known to his people. This isn't the first Christophany. Um, the Lord manifests himself to Abraham as a traveler in Genesis 18, or, or to Jacob in a wrestling match in Genesis 32, or to Moses in the burning bush in Exodus 3. And here, now he reveals himself to Joshua as a man of war. You know, Christophanies provide important encouragement for us. They show us the preexistence, the deity of our Redeemer. Jesus has been there since the beginning of creation. He's been at work in the lives of our forefathers. And every time he shows up, he makes himself known to Israel as a redeemer, as their God, as their head. And his powerful presence always provides exactly what they need. Sometimes he shows up as a warrior with all of creation as a, at his disposal against his enemies. Or sometimes as a pillar of fire, like when he protected the Egyptian, protected the Israelites from the Egyptians, sometimes as a glory cloud or as a rock to gain water from, sometimes as a baby born of a virgin. His powerful presence always displays his love for his people and his headship over all creation. His powerful presence is necessary for us to move forward in the work that he's called us to do. You know, as a foster parent, um, they told us that kids would come into our home and sometimes they might have trouble from their traumatic experiences, particularly at night. With one of the kids that were in our home, we found this to be true. And oftentimes I would find myself laying on the floor of their room, just holding my hand on their back or holding their hand, praying that God would allow them to fall asleep. There's something about another's presence that brings peace. And just like that hand allowed for peace on this child's life, so Christ's presence allows for peace in Joshua's life, and it also allows for peace in our life. God says to Joshua, I have now come. And Joshua realizes he's in the presence of God. You know, he may have thought he was called to be the commander of the Lord's army in conquering the Canaanites, but he's still fully submissive and under the authority of Christ as his Lord and King. And he falls down on his face and he worships him. Believer, in the biggest moments of your life, and this was arguably Joshua's biggest moment, do you look for help among men or in yourself? Or are you looking for the risen Christ who has taken on flesh to command the battles in your life? to conquer the evil that is attacking us. Who do you look to in those moments? If you're in one of those moments that feels overwhelming, don't forget that he promises his children, I'm always with you. I will never leave you or forsake you, not even until the end. 
We don't, wait, we don't have to wait on him to show up. His spirit dwells within us. He's always with us. He walks with us every step of the journey. And it's true. Who can stand against the might of the Lord? Therefore, I encourage you, seek him in worship. Seek him in prayer. Seek him in the study of his word. Seek him constantly throughout the week. Seek his presence and approach him readily, regularly, ready for worship. When we experience the presence of Christ in our lives, we'll be overcome with awe. We'll be overcome with reverence. We'll be drawn away from those sins that have entangled us. We experience the presence of Christ. We'll be enamored by the wisdom of his ways in comparison to our ways. We'll be encouraged by the awe of his creativity and creation. When we experience the presence of Christ, we will be able to engage in the works that he's prepared in advance for us to do. And we will be enthralled by his powerful presence. Spurgeon said it this way, he says, there's not a single part of our inner man which will not be bettered by the presence of Christ. Say that one more time. There's not a single part of our inner man which will not be bettered by the presence of Christ. Therefore, this is to be desired above all things. So now that we've seen the Lord's patient preparation of Israel, we've seen the power of his presence, we've got one more question to look at. It's this. Joshua asks it this way in verse 14. Says, what message does my Lord have for his servant? If you're like me, you're thinking, surely this is the moment that God's about to give Joshua the nuclear code, right? This is the, the handoff moment where I'm about, about to get the power. God's going to show him all of the resources that he has in his hand. He's going to show him um, he can use all of creation as an instrument of war. Maybe he's going to show him how to push the button, swallow up the, the Canaanites and just suck them out of the earth. Or maybe he's going to unleash the legions of angels there is disposal as he does to Elijah. Or maybe he's going to use the plagues like he did in Egypt. Joshua's ready. He says, what message does my Lord have for a servant? But I think this question says more about Joshua's posture. Let's look at a few things. He knows that Christ is Lord. This commander-in-chief, he's the one that's in control. You know, we use this term Lord a lot in our common vernacular, particularly when we talk about Jesus as our Lord and Savior. But are we ready to submit like he's the commander of our lives? Are we there yet? Joshua knows if Christ is Lord, then he is servant. He says, what message does my Lord have for his servant? Joshua under, seems to understand this is from Christ's response to his question, are you for us or against us? And he says, neither. He understands it's not... God, it's not his right to claim God for his side, but that Joshua and the Israelites will submit to God and they will fight on behalf of the Lord's army, not the Lord fight on behalf of Joshua's army. Joshua's not the commander of the Israelites. Joshua's just a lieutenant, submissive to the commander of the Lord's army. Recently, my daughters and I were talking before bed and we're talking about this idea of lordship. And one of them said, Daddy, if Jesus is Lord, then does that make us slaves? It's a great question, right? And the answer is yes. 
If Jesus is our Lord, then we follow all of his commands. We depend on him fully with our lives. And that makes us his servants. That makes us his slaves. As Christians continuing to grow in our sanctification, we should emulate this posture of Joshua. And we should evaluate our own lives and ask, are we trying to garner God's allegiance and his help for our endeavors? Or are we submitting ourselves to his will and giving our allegiance fully to him? What's your posture? So what great message does the Lord have for Joshua's servant? What does he tell him? What's the nuclear code here, right? He says this, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. You know, this command has a double encouragement for Joshua. First, as Moses' successor, he would have had great meaning as an affirmation from the Lord here. Moses had met face to face with the Lord just before God prepared him to lead the Israelites in the desert. And God affirmed Moses and he's affirming Joshua here as his anointed leader. Secondly, Joshua would have realized this command is simple in its substance, but it's powerful because who the author is, who the speaker is. The ground where Joshua's standing, it's in Jericho. It was a land controlled by the Canaanites. Five minutes earlier, it wasn't holy, but now, because it's in the presence of the Lord, it becomes a holy place. Not because of the land, not because of Joshua, but because of God's presence. So no matter what was to be commanded, Joshua was going to follow. We would do well to obey God's word and to take on a posture of obedience like this. In the early 1800s, the Duke of Wellington was asked this question. He says, is it any use to send missionaries to India? The Duke simply responded, what are your marching orders? He said, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. Those are our marching orders. We have nothing to do with whether they are prudent or not. They are sure to be good if they come from him. That's true, isn't it? As long as they come from him, we shouldn't ask questions. But we do that, don't we? I do. We need to abandon any desire to question God's plans and simply obey. We haven't studied the Lord's command on defeating Jericho yet. But we all know, to the common ear, it's going to sound crazy, right? Let's march around, do a 5K around the city and blow some horns, and the, the most powerful city in the world is going to fall down. That's a crazy plan. But what do we do? In the presence of the Lord, we're called to take on a posture of obedience. In chapter 7, we'll study a guy named Achan. And spoiler alert, Achan just doesn't follow the commands. Spoiler alert, he does because of it. Consider for a moment. Have you taken on the posture of a faithful servant following God's commands? Or do you struggle as I do, just questioning God's directions for your life? Do you find yourself in willful disobedience to our master? If you do, I encourage you to consider a posture of worship. I encourage you to ask God to forgive you for your disobedience and wake up new in the morning 
and ask the question that Joshua asked. What message does my Lord have for his servant? If you're here tonight and you haven't submitted to Christ as your Lord, or if you're here and you find yourself in active rebellion against the Lord's command in your life, I urge you to submit. Just submit to him. Consider, how can you fight the battles that are before you in your own strength? How can you fight the battles and the resources that you have? Consider, how can you fight the cosmic battle against evil in your own human strength? We as individuals, we're woefully overmatched against evil. But for those who will submit to Christ, we have a commander who has all the host of the, of the Lord at his beckoning call. He has all of creation there for him. If you come to Christ seeking to know, are you for us or against us? You're going to get the same answer that Joshua did. Neither. I'm the commander of the Lord's army. But if you submit and you follow his lordship, you'll find yourself dwelling in the promised land. But if you fail to submit to his lordship, we have no reason to believe that the man with the sword will not, will not draw it against us as his foes. You see, God's patient preparation, God's powerful presence must lead us to a posture of obedience. Now that 30-year-old lawyer that found himself as special counsel to the president in 1968, found himself lacking in 1973 after he had just helped the president win re-election. In that questioning of himself and his, his life, he went and visited a trusted advisor, a guy named Tom Phillips. He walks into to Phillips' office and he says, Tom, you seem different than the last time I saw you. And Tom says, I am. I've become a Christian. And he shares with him a story from C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis's great book, The Great Vice. And as Chuck Colson is driving away, he finds himself thinking about God, questioning, is there a God? And if there is, can I know this God? And later that night, he met the living God, and his, not, his life has never been the same. From there, God had a perfect plan for his life. It's a plan that all of us would have picked. He went straight to prison for his part in the Watergate scandal. And there he started a Bible study. He began to learn from some of these guys in jail. God used this time of patient preparation to teach Colson about his powerful presence. And when he was released from prison, he had many opportunities to go back to law or he could go back and he could practice business in Texas. But God commanded him to go back into the prisons and to bring the hope of the gospel back to these people who needed it. And he started a ministry that now has over 50,000 volunteers who share the gospel in over 120 different countries. And they've shared the gospel with over 500,000 people this year. His life verse is simply this. He who wants to save his life will lose it. But he who loses his life for Christ's sake will save it. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word that speaks truth to us, that guides us and leads us. God, I pray, would you cause your spirit, your presence to fall on us. And God, I do pray, if there's anyone here tonight who's not submitting to you, might tonight be the night that they say, I will bow my knee to you the same as Joshua did.
Oh, we pray for your powerful presence to fall on us all the days of our life. In Christ's name, amen.